Folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. It's always one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is October the 15th, 2014, and this is episode 1445 of the Survival Podcast. And uh, i got a good one for you today. I'm going to start a series on bow hunting for deer, and I'm going to talk today about my kit the kit that I take when I go bow hunting, specific for bow hunting. Uh, a lot of the stuff is included in my rifle kit as well, but I'm not talking about my clothing. I'm not talking about my tree stands or my bows or my broadheads of choice or anything like that today. I'm actually talking about the small pack that I take with me when I bow hunt and what's in it. I will leave out anything that is, uh, well, like you would always carry in the woods, like a compass. Okay, so any basic survival prep gear I'm leaving out of this. This is all stuff that's specific to deer hunting and most much of it very specific to archery hunting. If you've been thinking about taking bow hunting up, this show will probably save you some grief. Specifically with not getting lost, not losing a place that you planned to hunt at, um not uh, not being able to maybe find where you left gear uh, when you went to track a deer, not ending up with a dead deer and not having all the things you need to get it out of the woods and many other things. Uh, I can tell you that most of this stuff was taught to me by my uncle and it saved me the grief of having to learn by not having it. But even over time, I've added to my initial kit and right now I think I have a pretty complete kit for the typical deer hunter. And I'll talk more about that in just a minute. Before we do, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day, number one today, Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason. What are you going to get from the Berkey Guy? Well, Berkey Water Filtration Systems. I know that might be shocking, but that is what the Berkey Guy provides. Amazing customer service, just a great all-around guy, long-term supporter of TSP. We're talking four or five years now. Jeff's been a supporter of the Survival Podcast. Gives you guys discounts in the MSB, and he has other great prepping stuff at his website, directive21.com. Next up today, JM Bullion. Um, one thing you can be sure of, the dollar will be worth less next year than it is today. You just know that. And the reason you know that is the people that control the printing of the money, the Federal Reserve, if you ask them, will honestly tell you to your face, yes, it will, that's the plan, inflation is good. So it makes sense to put some insurance on your wealth, and one of the many ways that I do that is through purchasing gold and silver. Uh, since I found JM Bullion, I buy my silver and gold from JM because I get great pricing and great service. And what I mean by that is I pay less than buying on most items from, let's say, Monex or Atmex, two of the biggest there are out there, and yet I can still get directly to the President Michael. And uh, he's a great guy, and there's been a few little hiccups with customer service over the years we've been working together, and one email to him, and man, he's on it, and he's got it taken care of for you guys. To have a company be a sponsor, especially with gold and silver, I have to have that. When I talked to some of the other big players in the business about being sponsors, I could not get a guarantee that I could talk to somebody that could absolutely make something happen now. When I found JM, I knew I had that. A great supplier, a great price, and great service. And they also do a discount for members of the MSB. So consider joining the MSB, if for nothing else, to get a discount on gold and silver. 
On that note, do consider joining the MSB. If you're a military person, law enforcement officer, uh, member of the Peace Corps, or a first responder like an EMT, paramedic, or firefighter, all of you do qualify for a discount. Just send me an email with service discount in the subject line. Send an email to jack at survivalpodcast.com. Tell me about your service. One or two sentences is all I need, and I'll get back to you. Do that before, not after you join. And uh, everybody else, just consider joining. It costs about two two dimes an episode to join the member support brigade, and the discounts in there will more than pay for that membership uh, if you uh, if you are buying things in the preparedness world. Next up, looks look at the year that was the episode. Today I have for you three: Murder by Suicide, Age of Discovery, The Green Cape, and Where Is My Copenhagen. Uh, you can read Age of Discovery and Where's My Copenhagen at the TSP Wiki in the link that's in today's show notes. I will read to you today, Murder by Suicide. Nicholas Radford had the misfortune to be, fr- be the friend of Lord Bonneville, who is a sworn enemy of the Earl of Devon. Thus he had reason to fear the sudden appearance of the Earl's son, Sir Thomas Courtenay, and his merry men. Boys will be boys, so once the men entered Radford's home, they set to looting the place. Sir Thomas invited Radford to meet with the Earl, but when Radford pointed out that Sir Thomas had stolen his horses, Sir Thomas walked out while Radford suddenly committed suicide by stabbing himself several times in the back with a sword. We know this is because Sir Thomas' merry men acted as witnesses. At least that is what the coroner's inquiry determined four days later. Next year, an exury jury will indict Sir Thomas Courtney for murder, but his family is entirely too powerful. The indictment will be ignored and Sir Thomas will go unpunished. My take by Alex Shrug. The stories of Robin Hood and his merry men exist, along with the more horrifying story of Fovel's gangs, the year 1341. Pardons were cheap where a man could dedicate his sword to a noble, which is a nice way of saying that he promised to kill anyone his boss told him to kill. But there were worse places to live than England. English robbers were actually admired. But in Westphalia, the region between Rhine and Wessler Rivers, it was considered extremely dangerous to travel. Um, yeah, it's a different world, isn't it? But it's the same. Uh, you notice that the people that are able to steal, to rob, to kill, are all the people with money. Gee, I'm glad things are... Di- oh, yeah, that's right. My take by Jack Spirko. Anyway, with that, let's get into the main topic of today's show. Uh, again, I want to point out today that, you know, if you're like, I can't believe you didn't say a canteen of water or something like that. Well, this is not wilderness survival stuff. This is stuff just for deer hunting and specifically tailored to the bow hunter. Um, let's start out, though, with just a real quick thing. Why bow hunting? Why do that in the first place? Why not just go out with a gun, bang, dead deer, done? First of all, in most states, you have longer seasons with archery. Uh, there are states that have a one-week deer hunting maybe two weeks of deer hunting with a rifle. Uh, some of those states that only have one or two weeks of deer hunting might have uh, six weeks of archery season. So it's just something that gives you more opportunity to get out there and hunt. There's a lot less people that hunt with a bow, a lot less. And that means there's a lot less hunting pressure, and it's more deer hunting rather than trying to intercept a deer scared out of its wits by 20 other people. So I, I think that that was always my biggest reason for archery hunting. As a hunter... I don't just want to be able to see an animal and kill it. Um, and, and rifle season, especially when I lived in Pennsylvania, was pretty much you figure out where when all the yahoos come into the woods with their coffee and their cigarettes and acting like idiots and whooping and hollering and deer drives, where are the escape routes 
put yourself there and hope one of the idiots chases a deer into you. It wasn't really about understanding the animal's natural pattern because as soon as all those idiots go in the woods, and boy, there's some idiots out there, uh, an army of orange idiots is no fun. As soon as the idiots move in, the deer go off their natural pattern. It's also the case that the best time to hunt deer on their pattern is in, is in the fall because of the feeding patterns. Uh, and that also is part of what you call the pre-rut and the rut, which is a breeding season. So the deer have very specific behaviors at that time. And it usually is the case that the peak of those behaviors falls in most states in archery season, but it's not in the rifle season. So I am the kind of guy that I like to try to figure out, hey, there's a deer in this area, and if I can find a specific deer and actually hunt that deer, um, that even that even makes it a little bit more interesting. That doesn't mean if I don't if I get an opportunity on a nice deer, I'm going to wait for that one deer every time. But there is something about targeting a specific animal. It doesn't always have to be massive. Maybe it's something about his behavior that leads you to believe I should be able to get this deer. Like he's hitting a series of scrapes and rubs. Uh, or maybe there's something unique about his rack. Not necessarily he's a monster, but he's got a drop tine or you, something that you can say, I know that deer. There's, there's just something unique about hunting a specific animal. Uh, and that's hard to do in rifle season. It can happen. Some of you guys live in states with low hunting pressure, but as you move into the eastern states, With lots of rifle hunters, especially as you move into the northeastern states where I originally, you know, grew up hunting, uh, it's just a much easier thing to hunt archery season and pattern animals. My secret, if I was going to take a week off and go hunting, which I used to do uh, in archery season in Pennsylvania and other states that have high populations of deer hunters, most game commissions publish their harvest numbers. How many deer were harvested every year in each county? Then they publish how were those deer harvested. You know, muzzle loader, firearms, archery are your three main categories. I'm sure some states have other things that they report, handgun, I don't know. But what I would always do is look for the four or five counties uh, with good access to public hunting grounds, with the highest harvest rates. And then out of those, I would look for the ones with the lowest archery harvest. And you'd say, well, don't you want a high success rate? Well, not. that's not really what it's all about. If you have the highest deer harvest, that means the deer population is really good there. And you have a comparative low archery harvest, that means there's almost no archery hunting pressure or relatively low compared to maybe other areas. So that is a way that if you can find a place like that, figure out where you're going to hunt, then uh, you know if you've got access to land in a place like that, you'll probably do very well uh, or at least have the opportunity to do well. The other reason for bow hunting is there's nothing else like it. Um, shooting a deer with a gun is, it, I mean, I enjoy rifle hunting. And when it comes to I don't have much time and I want some meat uh, and I have to schedule a hunt, my busy lifestyle I have now, I don't get to do as much bow hunting as I used to. I really don't. Um, but when there's a deer out there and you're laying crosshairs on it with a rifle and squeezing the trigger... I don't know. Some people tend to get still a, a big rush out of that. I don't. It's so mechanical. And unless you're talking about a really long shot or something like that, if you get any kind of arrest, to me, it's a guarantee. I know that as soon as those crosshairs fall where I want them to fall and I softly squeeze that trigger, that deer is shot. Um, there's not a ton that's going to go wrong. Um, I, deer at rifle ranges, you know, you can get a close shot with a rifle, but you tend to be able to take longer shots. So it's a little easier to move. You're not likely to get caught, etc. 
when you have a deer 15 yards away from you that knows something, and they always know, they always know something's not right. If they if they trusted their instincts, you'd never shoot one with a bow. You wouldn't. Um, not at that kind of range. When you see a deer at that range, you can tell that their their predator sensor is on, and they know something's not right. But a deer can't live that way because there's always something that could be there. So instead of trusting their instincts and just getting out of there, they just are on high alert until that feeling goes away. And that means every time you try to move, everything you try to do, any sounds you make, and I'll give you a tip right now, no wristwatches that have moving hands that go tick, tick, tick. You might wear that thing all day and never notice it. You sit in the stillness of the woods and you'll hear it. If you hear it, they hear it. There's so many opportunities to not even get to draw the bow before that deer breaks on you. Even when you have the bow back, you can get caught. That animal goes behind something you can't shoot through, etc. You get muscle fatigue. Your heart's in your throat. Your respiration goes up. Your whole body's on alert. The animal's on alert. It just doesn't happen with a gun. There's nothing else like it in the world. So that's why. Um, now let me go again through my kit. And again, this is items for deer hunting. I don't want any smart-ass comments about canteens or compasses or whatever. Um, the first thing is a small pack. Uh, the smallest pack that all this stuff will fit into, well-organized for you, is what I recommend. Because it's going to be up in a tree with you. Most likely, if, if you're a deer, if you hunt on a tree stand like I generally prefer to do, or possibly in a blind with you, um, I don't do a lot of spot and stock for deer with the bow. Uh, maybe if I'm scouting an area uh, during the season because I'm choosing to go to a new area, that might happen as a as a as a happenstance, as a lucky coincidence. But I generally, with a bow, like to get myself into a good position based on deer travel patterns, based on what's going on seasonally, where bedding areas are, where feeding areas are, and sit quietly and observe the forest. So that pack is usually coming up in a tree with me. So I want it to be small because when you get up on this little platform in a tree, real estate's at a premium. The smaller it is, the less conspicuous it is, the better, okay? Um, and that just is really a great idea to keep the pack size down, but yet big enough that you can organize everything because you're digging something out uh, in the dark woods at night or you're digging something out in the dark morning or you're digging something out um, up in the tree, okay? So those are all areas where you got to really think about being organized. The next thing is on the pack... I'm not like, get the most rugged, bulletproof, badass pack you can get for this. This type of hunting is not that hard on gear. Um, if you're going into the Bob Marshall wilderness or something for two weeks, you're in a totally different type of hunting because you're having to carry a, a, like a frame pack and all the stuff that you would carry to sustain yourself for that period of time. This type of hunting is generally, we've scouted an area, uh, we have decided someplace we're going to set up a stand. We're going in in the morning while it's pitch back dark, or we're going in in the middle of the afternoon to sit for an evening hunt. We're going to go in there. We're going to find our spot. We're going to get up in our tree. We're going to we're going to set up. We're going to be quiet. We're going to wait. 
We're either going to shoot a deer or we're not going to shoot a deer. We're going to climb down the tree, gather our crap, go back to our vehicle or our camp. In that type of environment, gear just doesn't need to be tough. What it needs to be is quiet. Now, I'm not saying buy scrappy, cheap stuff, but I'm saying that I, unless I knew exactly the model and make of what I was buying, I generally would not buy a pack like this online. I would go to a good outdoor store, Cabela's, Gander Mountain, etc., uh, Bass Pro, what have you, and I would handle and touch and feel it. And I want to be able to move it, and I don't want it to go crinkle, crinkle, grumple, grumple, crunkle, crunkle. I want it to be as quiet as possible. And if I have to give up some durability for quiet, I'll take it, because a new pack is cheap. This doesn't need to be a big, expensive pack. But a lost deer, well, you can't even put a price on it. And sound is thy enemy when you are a deer hunter. And when you are an archery hunter, sound is an extreme enemy. Again, since there's less pressure, deer have amazing ears, better than a dog's ears. And when they hear sounds, it's not like, oh, I heard leaves. That's bad. It's, well, I heard leaves over there. Let me see what's going. Okay. Yeah. All right. It stopped. That's fine. I'll go about being a deer again. Okay. But when they hear a sound that's foreign, like crinkle, 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 crinkle that way on material, hard canvas, is not a natural sound for a deer to hear. Now, there are, there are deer that get desensitized. There were deer that used to stand by the rifle range at one of the state game lands in Pennsylvania why people shot because there was no season on and they got used to it. Um, but in the woods when you're hunting and there's not some desensitized happens, that animal hears something that's just not right. The area they heard it from, they'll remember it. They'll avoid it for days sometimes. They'll just, if they were traveling through there, they happen to be in the area, you decided you wanted a sandwich or something, and you reached in your pack up in the tree, crinkle, crinkle, and because you're up in the air, that sound travels a little bit better in the canopy. That deer is 100 yards away where you never would have heard that. They hear crinkle, crinkle, ears twitch, ears go up. Now they're, now they're trying to get your scent, okay, Now they're trying to figure out, is something over there? They might investigate a little bit, but a lot of times what will happen is they'll just say, you know what, I've got many routes I can travel, something's not right there, and they might avoid that today, they might avoid it tomorrow, they might avoid it the next day. They really might, so quiet. Uh, the next thing that I carry is I always carry some Tinks, Doe and Rut, uh, number 69, uh, Bucklor, and this is urine, uh, from does that are in heat. That means they're they're ready to breed. And I carry that in 35 millimeter film canisters. And the way I prep those is I get boiling water and I dip the canisters in with tongs. And I take cotton with a pair of tweezers out of the bag, never touching it. I know it's probably been touched by somebody else. I just don't want to add to it. I put two to three cotton balls in the film canisters And I soak them with the, the, the Tink 69 Bucklure. Those then get sealed. You know, just close them. And I wear gloves when I do this. And I wear gloves when I go out in the woods and set them up. And I put them into a sm small Ziploc bag. And I put that Ziploc bag into another Ziploc bag. And then I put that into my pack. It's not so much for scent, the second Ziploc bag, to keep scent off of it. It's to keep it, if it does pop open, from putting stinky deer lure all over your other gear. Okay, And in the field, when I set those up, 
I will open the bags, I will pull out the film canisters, and I will leave them closed until I know where I'm setting it, and I will open them, and I will set the cap right next to the canister, and I'll set it in a place that I'd like a deer to stop. Because it might not just bring a deer in. Many times it'll make a deer stop. I used to use something called Dr. O's. Uh, I mentioned it before. I don't know if they make it anymore. It was more of a general deer smell, uh, and it worked really, really good. I've, at, you know, when I first started using scents, I was a little concerned using a doe and rut lure, uh, you know, pre-rut when there's no does in rut, and how would it affect if I wanted to take a doe for meat? How would she react to it? What I found is that deer are interested in that. And it'll stop does. I've seen it stop fawns. I've seen bucks run in, fuming, excited. Even though there's no deer that are going to be breedable for three to four weeks, it gets them you know, up and interested. So I've not actually ever seen it deter a deer. So I've pretty much standardized on that. Though if somebody could tell me if they still make that Dr. O stuff, if it's called something else, I'd love to get my hands on some of it. Uh, but I carry those film canisters, at least three of them. Because uh, I usually used to carry two. And you know, two is one, one is none, three is for me, etc. Uh, I usually want at least two set out, and sooner or later you will lose one. So it, it you know, it takes a, you know, you have to go back to get another one if you don't have them. Uh, so I carry those. And if I were using any other scent, I would also um, carry it the same way. Uh, this is the best way I know to carry these types of scents. It's the best way to make them deployable. I've seen people basically tie cotton with strings and put a little loop in the string, and then that way you can take your film canister and hang your scent. I guess you can do that. I never really found it necessary. Uh, when it comes to doing things like mock scrapes and all, I use scents right out of bottles to the ground and onto branches and what have you. For my little scent packs, this has always worked well for me. The next thing you want to have is about six feet of half-inch soft nylon rope. This is primarily for dragging a deer out. Uh, you can make a loop with it, throw it around a damn deer's neck once he's been field-dressed and gutted. Uh, find a random stick somewhere for a handle, tie it on a handle, and drag your deer out. That's what I use. There's all kinds of harnesses and stuff. Down to freaking Home Depot or Lowe's, six, find a, find a, a good strong nylon rope white. So when you drop it, you can find it easily, about a half inch to three eighths inch, anything like that in diameter. Something that's comfortable. If you do have to pull it with your hands, it's not going to cut into your hands, right? Soft, flexible. That way, when it's been in your pack and you haven't used your pack for a year and you go to take it out, it's not all kinked up and hard to unwind. Soft nylon. Okay, um, And six feet, more than sufficient for that type of activity. The next thing is a 25-foot piece of you know around one-quarter inch soft nylon rope, something pretty small but big enough that it's not going to get all twisty and tangled up like a fishing stream would, and a dog clip on the end of that. That is so that when you go up your tree stand, you're not carrying your bow, you're not carrying your pack, you don't have crap all over the place that can get you hurt, when you're you know, trying to get your stand in right and locked in and what have you, or even if you're just going up a ladder or what have you, um, you leave it on the ground. And you do the same thing with a rifle. You leave it on the ground. And then when you get up in your stand, you pull your gear up to you. And when you go down, you lower your gear to the ground, okay, and then you climb down to it. So that 25-foot piece of rope should be like in a top pocket in your bag because it's the one of the first things you're going to grab when you get on site. 
I actually usually keep that in my bag so I don't lose it. But when I get out of my vehicle or I leave camp to go to my stand, I take it out of the pack and put it in my right front pocket. So it's right there and ready to go. Because when you set up, what you want to do is set up quiet and fast. The faster you get up in that tree, as quietly as possible, and shut up and sit or stand, depending on what, how your stand works, and make no noise, the better. You're hoping to get in there in the pitch dark when whatever deer are in the area don't really know you're coming in and get set up and quiet and let the forest come awake and any disturbance you made kind of goes away at that point. Uh, or you're coming in, again, a few hours before prime time in the afternoon. Get in, get quiet. So having the stuff you need to get up in that tree immediately accessible is the way to go. But I keep it. Once I'm done hunting, it goes back in the pack, so I never forget it. You leave things in your pockets, you wear a different pair of pants, now you don't have your bow rope. Well, guess what? You're probably hunting on the ground because it's just not safe to use a climbing stand and try to carry your pack, your bow, your quiver, your sharp arrows, all that crap up your tree stand with you. So I would say that it's a good idea to get a second one of these and put it in your pack, let's say, at the bottom. Now, you might have to dig it out then, uh, but you keep it out of the way because you're probably not going to need it unless you lose this one. Or you get in one day and you realize you're in a hurry and it's all tangled and knotted. And you could sit there for five minutes making noise and distributing your scent. Or you can bite the bullet, shove it into a pocket in your pack, reach down on the bottom, get the other one that's nicely untangled, and get up in your tree. Just saying. Two of those is a good idea. It's not a lot of money for a dog clip and, and get 50 foot of nylon rope, cut it in half. Go feel it, though. It should be soft. It should not get stiff. It should not bind up. It should not make noise. It should be soft like a kid's teddy bear. Okay. White. Always white. You're going to drop it. I promise you, you want to be able to see it. You don't need a camouflage rope. The deer's not going to see the rope. You're going to put it away, okay? But if you drop it in the leaves, white is going to be easier to find, and this is something you need to have. The next thing I have in there is I have four one-gallon heavy Ziploc bags, and I put them in two squares because that's the, about the number that you can really get into a tight configuration. I keep folding them and folding them and folding them. I get them to the tightest small square I can get, and then each of them are held with two removable zip ties. Zip ties have a million uses, um, but by doing that, they're compact. These bags are for when you gut a deer. Most people, myself included, want to take at least the heart in the liver. So you can you, you, you field dress your deer, you put the liver in a bag, you put the heart in a bag, you take that bag and zip it shut, you put that bag inside another bag, and now you've got those bags. Those bags have many other purposes they can be used for. Really, two's enough. One bag inside another bag, and you throw that in the deer cavity. So you, you just throw it up inside the deer, and then when you drag the deer out, you don't have to worry about carrying that separately. It's in there. It's nicely contained. You don't get dirt all over it, etc. Some people like other organs, such as kidneys and things like that. That's a real reason to up your bag count a bit, uh, but there you go. The zip ties are great if you live in a state where they give you actual tags on your license that have to be put on the deer, either on the antler or through an ear or something like that. You take one of the zip ties that you've done that, you know, you've taken your deer with, put it through your tag and attach it to wherever your state says your tag is supposed to be attached. 
So the zip ties are multifunctional, and they keep the bags nicely bound up and out of the way of other stuff. Um, since by the time you're doing this, you've pretty much ended your hunt, you're not worried about making a noise, and you know they can go a little deeper in the pack as long as you know where to find them because you want to get, a lot of times, this is at night in the dark, you want to get the hell home. Um, the next thing is I really am a big fan of having a grunt or a bleat call. A uh, hybrid that does both is even better. The smaller, the better, as far as I'm concerned. I've seen the ones that like attach to your arm or whatever, and there's a little tube and you can reach over with your mouth. and It just seems like another thing on your body to me. And I'm not a big fan of a lot of things on my body when I'm bow hunting, and I'll talk about that more in a bit. A small call. I used to have one made by Primos. I don't think they make it anymore. It was about as big as your pinky, if you cut your pinky off at the, at the, the main joint, the middle joint from that up. Maybe a little bit bigger than that. Ward on a lanyard inside your shirt. Anything on your neck, on your body, inside your clothes when you're bow hunting. It takes one whack of the string, arrow's gone. So that little call inside there worked great. I had it for years, and eventually the reed broke. A little plastic reed in it uh, went sideways and broke. It had You took it apart, and it had an adjustment, and it did a fawn bleat, a doe bleat, a doe grunt, and a buck grunt. And... You can actually get pretty good at grunts. My throat is strained, so I won't do it right now. Another reason to have a call. But I can do a pretty good deer grunt. And grunts a lot of times will stop a deer or make a deer investigate, etc. And occasionally I've been out in the woods, seen nothing for a while, and just give a little grunt. And I've had especially young bucks just run in like, what's going on, dude? Who's over here? Um, so I've seen good-sounding calls cause deer to go the other way. It's not something you want to overuse. A good purpose for them, though, is if you have that call and you get it in your mouth and you've got a deer coming in and you want to stop them and you give them a little grunt or a little bleat, they'll usually stop. I try not to do that. I try not to do that, and I'll tell you why. It gives your location away, and as many times as they just stop, sometimes they stop and they lock eyes with you and you're screwed. Okay? So I, I try not to do that. I've actually found that just going like, like you say, hey, psst, hey, buddy, right? Really, really quiet, quieter than I'm doing it. I mean, so low that you probably would hear it in the microphone. Remember, that deer can hear. It's just a little odd, and that tends to stop them, and they, they really have a hard time when it's that quiet locating it, and they usually look around at ground level when you do that. So I've actually found for stopping deer, better to just psst, than to grunt or bleat because they tend to, like, They know exactly where that sound came from a lot of times. And when they look at you, you've really, really got a problem. And what gives away hunters to a deer, their face and your eyes are your biggest thing. So the next thing is a head net. Uh, this is nice when there's a lot of mosquitoes out early in the season too, but it's really to camouflage your face. You have to think about, this is another thing, I would not buy a head net without trying it out and see if it works for you. Um, especially if you're like me and you wear glasses, Uh, you got to think about how that head net works with glasses. And you want a head net that's not too bulky around the chin and the face where that, that bowstring's coming up. You don't want anything to interfere with that. So that's something you kind of play with. Some head nets, they seem to work great. First time you take them out, you wear glasses, they cause fogging. So with all gear that's going to be on your body, practice in your gear. I used to shoot 
off my, my dad's roof when I was a kid at hay bales. So I got elevated shooting, and I would practice all summer long just, you know, street clothes. But as it got close to the season, I would get up there with all the clothes I was going to wear and learn where things snag and learn where things get in the way. Now, this is the stuff that, you know, you can read all the books you want and stuff, but they, they seldom tell you the things I'm telling you today. These are learned in the field. Oh, that pocket snags a bowstring. Oh, shit. Now the deer's gone, and I missed it. Right? Much better if that pocket, and you're going to wear that shirt anyway, was tucked inside and taped down. Right? I mean, that's the kind of thing you do. Or you figure out, hey, I grabbed this jacket. I didn't think about it. It's got a, it's got a, a right breast flat pocket. Yeah? Tape it down. Right? I mean, it's that simple. Uh, but if you, if you go out and use the gear, you'll know in advance. Because you get out in the wilderness, you know, and you're up in your tree stand, you put your head net on, and you go, and your glasses go fog. Well, what are you going to do? You either hunt without a head net, and you're like a beacon up there, right? Um, or you take your glasses off, and now you can't see. Uh, I'm not a huge fan of face paint. I used to be. Uh, I've pretty much gone to just using a head net. Uh, it just doesn't seem worth it anymore to me to use face paint. But you might carry it as a backup in case you lose your head net or you, you have a problem using a head net for a reason or whatever. At least you'd have that because a person with a, you know, blazing white face sitting up in a tree does stand out. Now deer are colorblind, but they're, they see the, the shades of gray very well and something that's an unusual shade stands out to them. Trust me. Um, the next thing is I like to carry a rattle bag. I occasionally do do some rattling. Uh, I don't really rattle early in the season if the deer, I start rattling when the deer should be, should be, you know, sparring with each other and not before. Uh, but I leave it in the pack anyway because it's just easier. The one I have is a little bag. It's got some little pieces of wood in it. I think it's alder just by looking at it. And it has a, a Velcro thing that goes around and keeps it tight so it doesn't make any noise. You take it off and you can rattle, you can crack. Like you're, you're cracking. I've seen other ones made out of plastic that are like little discs. Uh, I'd say pick it up, play with it, see if you like the way it works. If the sound is good, it's probably good. One of the things that really attracts deer with the rattling is a crack. Like the two deer come together like two rams, crack, crack. And then a real intense, da 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 You know, like they're, they're tearing into it. And then just almost like now they're just kind of playing with each other a little bit and they're tickling the tips together. That's kind of my rattling technique. I'll do variations of that pattern. And uh, having that rattle bag is great. I don't like a set of deer horns. I know it's traditional. It's bulky. It snags on shit. I'm up in a tree. I want as small and compact a, a system as possible. And a rattle bag is just as good. It sounds the same to me anyway. And I've never seen a deer that, you know, if it was going to respond to rattling, not respond to it. Uh, the next thing is toilet paper. Yes, for that, too, so carry quite a bit of it. It also needs to be in a Ziploc bag, protected. The best way to carry a whole tube of toilet paper is to put the cardboard tube out of it and crush it down. That's still a bit bulky to me, so when I'm going to be going deer hunting and I want a new tube of toilet paper, I wait till the roll's about half empty. Yes, ladies, men do change the toilet paper. We really do, and we put it over the top like it should be, by the way. And uh, when it's about half empty pull the tube out of it, smash it down, and put it in a Ziploc bag. Um, and again, yes for that too, but what I really value it for is I've got a deer hit, I find a spot of blood, okay? I take some toilet paper, touch the blood with it, and lay it right where I found it. 
Now, if I lose my trail and I come back, I got the toilet paper with bright red blood on it. Or I'm going through and I look and I see a drop of something on a on a, a leaf. Is that blood? Touch toilet paper to it. That's you know it's blood. Yes, you can put your fingers on it and feel it, but uh, if it's a tiny droplet, sometimes when you do that, it's on dirt. You, you don't really get it on your fingers. You push it in the dirt. If you if you touch an area with blood with a piece of toilet paper, you know it's blood. And then I put a bigger clump down. That's where I found blood. If I see hair, even if I, it's not going to pick the hair up, but I'll put toilet when I'm tracking. If I didn't see exactly where that deer went down, and especially if I've got light blood spatter. I'm going to put that toilet paper down as a marker, especially in the dark when I'm trying to backtrack to where I found it. Much easier to see on the ground. So toilet paper is a huge advantage for tracking. And if you need it, you need it. I'll leave that one alone. Uh, a good light, a really good flashlight, and I prefer to have one that has the capability to go to blue light. Blue light causes blood to glow. Right, good intense blue light works really well for tracking in the dark. Uh, I have a flashlight that uh, is made by Coleman, and there's no lens covers. You just switch it, and it goes to red, to white, and blue. And the blue light is great. I don't necessarily always track with a blue light, but if I'm having trouble finding blood, I get down low and shine that blue light at a cross angle. A lot of times, you'll pick up blood that you normally wouldn't have picked up. Uh, with a with a conventional light. Also, hey, you're tracking through the woods when you're coming out uh, or going in in the dark. You are trying to find stuff, what have you. So I always also carry a headlight. And even if I'm using my flashlight to track, I have the headlight on too. And it just makes getting in, getting set up, getting your gear together, hooking up your pack, getting up in the tree so much easier. So the headlight's another thing. I keep it in the pack. But as soon as I get out of the car, it goes on my head. If I'm going in, in the middle of the day, I don't walk in like a bonehead with it on the middle of my head. But since I know I'm going to be up in that tree most likely till dark, I will make sure it's easily accessible once I get set in my tree. And those two lights are indispensable. You need them. You have to have them both. Yes, you can get by with just a flashlight, but man, the headlight makes your life so much easier. And then you know what I'm going to say next, extra batteries for both lights. Your light is as much your life as your knife as a bow hunter in the woods. Finding your way out, finding an animal, being able to dress an animal, all of these things, the light is extremely, extremely important. Uh, I like to carry pencils, at least two. The little stubby ones like for playing golf, you can use those for filling out uh, deer tags. I also like a little notepad. Uh, and those pencils together so I can make notes. A field notepad is a good idea there. Uh, but definitely the little pencils. And two is one and one is none. Right? So make sure there's at least two of them. Uh, I also, a lot of times if I think I'm going to have a pretty long drag, I will carry one or two very heavy duty, the biggest ones I can get, like 56-gallon contractor garbage bags. Now you can spend lots of money to buy deer sleds that generally make noise and don't fold up very compact, or they last for one drag if they do fold up and get very compact. Um, if you have these contractor bags, you can. if it's a smaller deer, usually you can just slide the damn thing inside it, or you can slice it open one, you know, one side, tie it around the deer, 
Uh, use, use duct tape. I'm going to get to duct tape in a second, but it's another use for duct tape is you can duct tape it. And basically, you're just going to drag the deer with the rope around the neck of the deer and, and the, the bag pulled up, but you, the deer's bearing all the weight. And if you put a deer in a contractor garbage bag, it slides across leaves a lot easier. Now, when you get blowdowns and sticks sticking up and things like that, are some of these heavy-duty deer sleds better for that? Sure. Uh, to me, it's a deer. It's not an elk. Pick it up and get it over. If you do get a deer, though, far enough out that you decide, I'm going to quarter this freaking deer. It's just too far to go, and you're hunting with a bigger pack and all. Then those contractor bags serve a purpose in addition to the Ziploc bags to bag up your meat, keep it clean, etc. So uh, I don't always carry those, but I usually have at least one anyway because it's a good wilderness item uh, in, in general. It's a good, you know, for making shelters, etc. Anyway, uh, the next thing is nitrile gloves, and. I have multiple reasons for this. Uh, the biggest, though, is when dressing a deer. I don't care about getting blood on my hands, really. I'm not trying to prevent getting deer flu or deer Ebola or whatever. Uh, but when your hands are covered and sticky in blood, and now i got to go all the way back to my car, I've got all my gear I'm trying to put away, keep my gear neat, it would just be better if I could slip off a pair of gloves, throw them into the Ziploc bag they came out of, And have clean hands. It's just easier. So I usually wear gloves when I um, when I deal with my deer. If I for some reason forgot my hunting gloves and I want to put out scent, I can slip those on and not touch the canister. I really don't want to touch the film canister with my skin ever. I know there's other smells there and things like that. I do my best to eliminate them. But that I mean, I'm not a scent freak like some people are wearing scent suits and stuff like that. But... I do try to minimize anything that the deer might actually get direct contact with from ever touching my skin, uh, at least have it sanitized before uh, that the deer comes in contact with it and never touch it again with my skin. So it's another residual backup for that. Uh, the next thing are what are called trail tacks or night tacks, etc. All these are is reflective thumb tacks. And they make a lot of different kinds. They make some that are more like push pin tacks with, uh, with like uh, reflective tape on them and all. The ones I like are just a flat push pin tack like they just have a flat tack head like the kind you put in your teacher's uh, chair when you were in school if you were that kind of a mischievous young person um, the next item on my list is actually a GPS but I'm going to talk about its weaknesses and why I consider it a backup navigation item rather than a primary navigation item you need a uh, backup for trail tacks allow you to do things like this so I'm going out to scout a place and I pick out a tree In an area, I cut some laneways in my area so I can get shots out. I think about everything, how I want to set up, where I want my stand to be. Ideally, I've brought my stand with me. This is a pre-scouting thing, not, not during the season. But sometimes you have to do this to move to new spots during the season with your stand, and that's why I'll get to some other stuff in a second. But I've gotten in there, and I've decided to, you know, Monday morning next week, first day of the season, I'm going to be in this tree. This is my spot for the first day, for whatever reason. So... Usually you have some kind of a primary trail, and most people don't sit there and hunt in the middle of a primary you know, access trail. They find a thicket or something to hunt. So now I take my thumbtacks and I put them in the tree facing the direction so that when I'm coming in from the road, I can shine my light and they reflect and they lead me right to my tree. On my tree, I'll put like six of them. Uh, you know, well, I'll know it's my tree when I get to the last tree with tacks in it. No, you won't. I'm telling you, everything looks different at 4 a.m. 
So I'll put like a, a circle on the tree that I'm actually going to hunt in. So I just, I can't miss it. That's my tree. I will put markers on more trees than I think I need. And that way I'm going to be able to find my tree. It's not that I'll not find my tree if I don't do this, but what do I want to do? I want to get from the trail, through the woods, to the tree, up the tree, and shut the hell up and stop moving and making noise and fidgeting and digging stuff out as quickly as possible and as quietly as possible. So I want my, my, my access to be as easy as possible. Now, some people say, well, then other hunters will know where you're hunting. Good. Because the majority of bow hunters are ethical people, and they respect other people, and they don't want to hunt on top of somebody else. So when they see your tax, they will go somewhere else. Because they don't want to be on top of you. They want to be, that's why you bow hunt, to get away from other people. Are there random ass clowns that might take your tax and lead you somewhere stupid or something like that? It could happen, okay? But it's never happened to me. It's never happened to me. Now, I'll tell you what not to do. I had a friend that decided he was going to beat the odds. Uh, so a day before the first day of the season, he went and did his tax, and he took his climbing stand, mounted it on the tree down low, so that when he went in, he didn't have to set up his stand and make more noise. And somebody that evening found his tax, checked out his hunting spot, see what was there, stole his tree stand. So I wouldn't leave, you know, tree stands that are easily accessible to others. Uh, some people use a stand that you hang, and it's a permanent stand. Well, it's not a permanent stand, but it's a hanging stand, not a climbing stand. And then they bring in something to climb with to get up into that stand. That's usually okay, because that means the person who would steal would have to have a climbing medium or mechanism to get up there. Um, usually they don't. So... Because uh, it's usually not other hunters. It's it's people that are wannabe hunters or whatever. Just, oh, look at this. Somebody left it here. No, somebody didn't leave it there. You stole it. Uh, but I wouldn't leave gear out in the open like that. But the tags help you in. The other thing I will do with tags on occasion, if I'm tracking a deer and it's gone pretty far, 100 yards is far in the dark, and a part that you're not familiar with uh, where there's no trails. So at times, if I'm tracking deer, I'm not just laying down paper um, I'll, I'll lay down some paper where that spot was, but it may not be as visible from the other way. I'll put a couple tacks in a tree behind me. So it's just more opportunity for my, me to find my way back to my tree and back out. I'll often, you know, you mark the, the path in. If I'm going to be hunting there in the evening, I'll also mark the other sides of the tree for the path out. Well, you, you should know where you are. Yeah, right. It's dark. Uh, I'm tired. I've hunted all day. Maybe I'm, if I'm lucky, I'm dragging a deer with me. Uh, everything I can do to make my life easier, the better. So I love the night tax for that. GPS I see as working a couple different ways. I'm tired. This deer is bigger than I expected. Uh, I've injured myself. I can't drag this deer out right now. I'm gonna I'm gonna gut that deer. I'm gonna use that drag rope to get the deer up off the ground, hanging in the tree, and hopefully out of the reach of coyotes if possible. If I can do that, if I'm physically capable of doing that, I'm going to mark that spot with a GPS. I'm going to go get help. I'm not going to rely on night tax for that. I'm going to put them up, but I'm not going to rely on night tax for that. Or I do have a buddy, and it's just going to be easier with two of us. We can both grab a side of the stick and pull it out. I'm going to leave that deer and go, go to my meeting spot and meet my buddy. I'm going to GPS mark that. I'm going to GPS mark my car. I'm going to GPS mark all my trees. If I have places set up to hunt, I'm going to GPS mark them. 
so I don't get disoriented. I'm going to be able to pull that GPS up at any time and look and go, here's where I am, here's where that uh, that tree that I forgot, I forgot that I set up that area last season. It's probably still a pretty good place to hunt. I'm going to go check that out because deer just start moving here or some guy's in my area. You know, you come in and there's a guy like in your tree. It happens. Sometimes he's a jerk, follows your night tax or whatever. Sometimes he just went, oh, this is a good place to hunt. There's nobody here. It's public hunting grounds. Why shouldn't I hunt here? You know, sometimes if he comes in during the day, you, a lot of times you don't even notice those tax if you're not looking for them. So I've had people that have been in a tree next to where I had set up or whatever. You want multiple options, and that GPS helps you orient quick and remember the places you've scouted and set up. So that's what I see, that you get lost. Well, now let's fire the GPS up, take a look, car's over there. All right, I can find my way out of here. Now I know. And usually, if you know the area pretty well and you're just a little disoriented, as soon as you pull that thing up, you're like, oh, I know where I'm at now. I, I, that's, that's, that, I must have took the, the thicket through and I ended up here. I, I don't know if I've ever ended up having to do that, but I'm glad that that opportunity is there. What the GPS has been mostly for me is exactly what I said earlier, which is, oh, that's right. Uh, two weeks ago I was here and I set up that other spot. I cut off some branches and, and what have you, and that's a good place to go. The next, compact binoculars. Uh, notice I haven't set a rangefinder yet. Uh, if I start hunting the, the plains or the fields or something, someday I may become entranced with uh, rangefinder. I've gotten very good at knowing distance to deer. And I've gotten very disciplined with my range is about 30 yards. And uh, honestly, with the bow that I shoot now, it's not that big a deal. That bow is so flat shooting out of 30 yards. I'm thinking of going to a lighter bow. I traded for an old bear Kodiak uh, at the last barter blanket. I really need to get that bow kitted up. I love that old school bow. It's light compared to my modern bow. Uh, it doesn't shoot as fast. It doesn't shoot as flat. But, I mean, honest to God, a good compound or recurve in the 45 to 50 pound range, I don't care if it's the 30-year-old bow, if it's in good shape, it's all you need. Unless you're hunting on the plains and you're taking these longer shots and things like that, and that's just not what it's about for me. Um, so I've just never been big on a rangefinder. Is that 17 or 20 yards? I don't care. It's a dead deer. I mean, and you you practice this. Now, this is where I, I think about getting a rangefinder sometimes, just to be able to sit in a tree when you're a little bit bored and it's, you know, put your rangefinder up, rangefind a rock. Okay, that rock's... 25 yards. Put your thing up, range find a tree. Okay, that tree's 30 yards. And I usually, when I set up a spot, I just pace a couple spots. Like, I know that pine is 30 yards. I know that rock is 20 yards. And I know that that over there, that other thing, whatever it is, that stomp is 10. And with that, I can pretty much range the whole area. And that's how most guys use range finders for bow hunting on stand. Use them. They don't range find the deer because you're in a position now where that deer is close. You've already range found certain distances. So I may add one. I've just, you know, and I'll tell you where I think it would be the most valuable. If I am going to go in and pre-season scouting area and set up several spots for myself, which is what I like to do, I'm going to know. When I get in that tree, I've already paced off. I've already in my notepad made a little note. Big pine tree, 31 yards. Large boulder to left. 15 yards. I've made a range card, just like you do in the military. And uh, that's it. That's all there is to it. If I'm impromptu hunting a place where, okay, I don't have a spot set up, I'm going to go in, I'm going to look for sign, 
I'm going to figure out a nice place within you know 30 to 40 minutes, and I'm going to get set up now. A rangefinder would be nice for that because it's less movement in the area. But again, I'm going to be putting out my little scent bombs. So I put my little scent bomb out. I just pace for my tree, 15 yards. Put my little scent bomb where I want the deer to stop. Pace over here, 18 yards. Boom. Okay, 15, 18. By having two spots at known distances, estimating out to 30 yards just isn't hard. So I've never gone over to the dark side of range finding, but maybe I should because I can see some value to it. But the compact binoculars to me are the real value because I've not found a range finder that really gives me the visibility of what a good pair of like my favorite binoculars are a pair of Leupold six power, and I call them mid-sized binoculars. They're pretty small, but they're not the tiny ones. And I usually will not have these on my neck once I'm in a tree. I'll have them on the tree somewhere, and I'll occasionally look around and, and try to spot deer in the distance. I'm not you know, using these on a deer 25 yards away to evaluate its rack. My vision's not that bad. I can make that determination for myself. It's more about checking around the area. Because sometimes if you do that, you'll see deer that don't approach you. But you'll notice, okay, I just saw over an hour, two or three different deer over there. And I'm not maybe going to move now because I'm coming up on prime time. But if I get no action tonight, um, I may hunt somewhere in the morning other than there because I don't have a spot. But I may go in the afternoon and scout that area, see what the heck's going on over there. Well, without those binoculars, I may have never identified that those deer were out there. So I love having the compact binoculars. Scent Eliminator. I do carry a small bottle of spray scent eliminator only because I don't think it can hurt. Uh, it might be that little bit of extra edge. Uh, my procedure has always been to have my hunting clothes, at least my outer garments, uh, with pine needles and leaves and crap like that in a Rubbermaid tub. And I put those clothes on when I get out of the car or get out of the truck, right out in the field. And if somebody sees me in my skivvies and doesn't like it, they should have looked at my ass. That's all I, that's all I can say. Now, I'm not standing in the middle of the road doing that, but... Uh, uh, to me, it's worth it to not have the scent of coffee and car and dog on my clothing. Uh, I wash those clothes in an unscented detergent, and then I wash them a second time with no detergent. And then they go into the tub, and they stay in the tub for the entire hunting season. But, yeah, the little bit of sun eliminator, you know, especially middle of the day, it's kind of hot. You know, spray it on yourself like deodorant, like on the outside on your armpits and stuff. It can't hurt. Um and move slow in those, when it's warm, you're going to sweat some, move slow, uh, take your outer garments off, uh, put them in your pack, put them over your shoulder, whatever, keep your body temperature down, move slow, get into your spot, and then as it gets cold, you can put those additional layers back on. Uh, a pruning saw. There's a small, simple pruning saw. They cost about 10 bucks. You go out, you set up a spot, you get up in your tree, you look, you find stuff that's in the way. If you're, pre, if you're doing this in advance, you prune those branches out of the way. But sometimes you're impromptu. You get up in a tree, and all of a sudden, like, there's a branch hitting you in the face. You reach up and prune that thing off. Don't touch it. Let it fall to the ground. Don't touch it. Because there's a chance that deer's going to walk right underneath you, give you that great backbone, break the spine shot. Uh, but if you've touched that branch, boy, that's really going to give away your position. Skin contact with stuff is where that scent really transfers heavily. 
deer, unless you're, again, you're out in the Bob Marshall Wilderness or something like that. They're used to smelling some human scent. People are around. We exist. They accept that. It's when the scent is, is stronger or distinct or something's not right about it, and they think the human's here now, not the human used to be here. Right? So try to minimize contact with your skin. But a pruning saw. I have a little hook thing that's basically a strap and a hook that lets me hang my pack on the backside of the tree. Okay, so it's out of my way, and maybe hang my arrow quiver there too. I usually actually take the quiver off the bow, and on my stand, the piece that sticks out on the back of the stand, I set the quiver there. I don't like my quiver on my bow when I'm in my stand. I really don't. I, I just think it's a bad idea. Um, it's just one more thing that can bang something, hit something, snag something. So I have that hook. I try not to use it. It's one more thing you gotta get out of there and you gotta do and you gotta mess with and you gotta put away. It's there when there's no other option. Usually there's a branch or two somewhere. You know, you go up to where you're getting into the branches and I'll prune one off and I'll have just a branch sticking out of the tree and that's where I'll hang my pack. So I like a small backpack with a handle on the top, the loop handle on the top, that loop handle hooks right onto there. And uh, so I try to do it that way. I mentioned duct tape already. Duct tape is infinitely valuable. Every redneck knows you can improvise anything with enough duct tape. Um, but the biggest thing that I use duct tape for is if I happen to notice any part of my equipment or gear on my body is going to possibly catch a string. Uh, this often happens too. Like if you tear a shirt, so the shirt was smooth and it wasn't going to grab a string and now you've ripped it. Well, you can repair it in the field with duct tape, and you're also keeping stuff out of the way. Um, there's just a million things you can do with duct tape. But again, my primary concern is if I happen to notice any piece of gear that's going to get in the way. And this is why I always try to shoot the exact gear that I'm going to wear before I go out. Because, again, all it takes is one pocket flap. I usually do shoot with a forearm guard. I don't need one. Uh, it's very rare that I slap my my arm, what have you, but if you do it, it hurts, and it sucks. And so when I'm practicing, I almost always wear a forearm guard, and just a, a short forearm guard. I don't wear the one that goes all the way up the arm. It's just too cumbersome to me. When I'm shooting on stand, and I'm actually going to shoot at a deer, I usually have the forearm guard inside a long sleeve. And that means that it's not going to catch on anything if I do happen to slap it, and I'm still likely to make my shot count. Uh, so that's just a little piece of advice. So you don't have to do it, but if you have a short forearm guard, it's rare, but there's a potential for the string to grab the backside of it. It's not really going to hurt. It'll still do its job uh, in most instances, but it can throw the arrow off. So I, I kind of suggest if you're going to use a forearm guard uh, that you do that. Now, my forearm guard... Uh, and I, I, when I shoot, a pa sometimes I shoot with a release. I'm, I'm moving more back to shooting what you call Apache style with fingers. I have a finger glove as well. And um, the reason I like a release is when you get into the time of the season where it's colder, you can wear proper gloves to keep your hands warm a lot better. It's not easy to shoot well with a good warm glove, but you can shoot with a release. So I'll go to a release uh, when I am uh, in cold weather. And I'll shoot with fingers most of the time, and I'll wear a finger glove. I take that forearm uh, guard and the finger glove, and I put the Velcro strands of them together, and they go right in the top of my pack. And when I get out of the car, 
and I take out the, the bow string or the, the, the gear string for carrying the gear up, I put that in my right front pocket. I take the, the glove and the forearm guard and I put it right on a belt loop. If I happen to get a shot at a deer walking in, I'm just going to shoot bare-fingered and bare-armed. I'm not going to worry about it. I'm just not going to worry about it. Uh, and I do practice without the finger, uh, the fingertip glove as well uh, so that I can shoot that way. But if I'm going to be set up, I prefer to shoot with the, the finger guard. It just is more comfortable. Uh, I, I have on occasion also, if I really think there's a high potential to see a deer, I'll put the glove on, but I'll leave the, uh, the, uh, the arm guard on my belt loop until I get in and get set up. It's just one more cumbersome thing in the way when I'm setting up. I've gone to, if I'm wearing, whether I even wear the arm guard is this way. I have a really light net camo ghillie suit type thing. Uh, it's not really a ghillie suit, but it has the, the, the leaf-like cuts in it, and it's just very thin mesh. If I'm wearing that and it's hot out, I wear the arm guard underneath it. If it's where I'm wearing up to, you know, just a, a kind of like a heavy shirt, I don't wear it because the shirt's going to give me enough protection. Um, again, I, I don't sit around terrified that I'm going to slap my arm, but if you get, if you get one good one, you're like, you know what? That's not really not, I mean, you look at a bruise sometimes about the diameter of the top of a coffee cup. Uh, and it lasts a long time. And it's just something that, you know, if you shoot right, it won't happen. But hey, um, Everybody makes mistakes. And the reason I'm actually more partial to wearing it when I'm hunting than when I'm target shooting. Like a lot of times I'll target shoot and just wear a long sleeve and not worry about it. When I'm target shooting, I know I'm going to always have perfect form. And frankly, if I slap my arm, that'll teach me a lesson. When I'm in a tree and a deer doesn't do exactly what I expected, which is most of the time, and I have to turn in some weird contorted way, There's times where you, you know what, I'm going to, and you're thinking about it, it's going to hurt. <laughs> Knowing that arm guard's there lets you relax because you want to be as relaxed as possible in taking the shot. I'll say more about that in the future. Um, the only thing that I'm going to talk about today briefly now uh, before I wrap up that is something you would carry even if you weren't hunting always is a good knife. My knife of preference when I was younger for this was the Buck Personal. It's a small drop point hunting knife. Right now I'm holding in my hand uh, Patrick Rohrman's uh, third uh, limited edition knife from MT Knives. This is going to be the knife I carry everywhere for the rest of my life now, honestly. He's based this on uh, the Bob Loveless drop point hunter, uh, which again is a pattern I really like. The old Bob Loveless knives used to sell for like three grand. Uh, Patrick's got this knife coming out for somewhere in the $500 range. I have one of the prototypes Uh, it's everything I'm looking for in a hunting knife, and especially as a bow hunting, a uh, deer hunting knife. Hunters have this tendency to think they need a really big knife. This knife's about eight and a half inches long and has a cutting edge of about three and a half inches. Not only is that everything I need to field dress a deer, I can take a deer apart with this knife. And generally when I am butchering a deer, quartering a deer, etc., I'm using a little bit larger of a knife Uh, to do that work because I've got the deer home. But if I had to do it in the woods, I wouldn't hesitate to do it with this knife. The reason you don't want anything bigger than you need to have for this type of hunting is because it's one more bulky item. It's one more thing that can get in the way. It's one more things, thing that stuff can snag on. So you'll see most people are right-handed, 
and they carry their knife on their right hip. That is a terrible mistake for a variety of reasons, but it's specifically a mistake when you're bow hunting. If you're right-handed, you're going to shoot with your left foot forward, your right foot to the rear, your left arm extended, your right arm back, bowstrings there. Hey, guess what? I know if you're standing up, there's no way that bowstring's grabbing on to that knife. I know that. But when you're squatted down because you're taking a shot underneath something, when you've had to turn sideways, when you've had to contort your body, thwack. There goes your arrow. There goes your deer. Nice season. Goodbye. Right? So I want a smaller knife, but I also want that knife way around back. And it's, I'm climbing a tree, and I have to turn a little bit to, to get the stand of set right. Now I'm digging my knife scabbard all up in the tree. I've got something else making noise. I have that knife where basically I have to move the, 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 uh, the, the scabbard a little bit with my fingers to get my wallet out. And if I want to, I can still pull it forward to the front of my hip, but I can have it almost all the way around to the small of my back. That's where I carry my knife, um, especially when I'm hunting. Getting in and out of cars, it's just out of the way. But a good drop point hunter, sharp. Uh, you know, really, really sharp. Shaving hair sharp. I'm not going to talk about how to field dress a deer today because we're wrapped up for the day. I'm going to talk about that in a future episode, you know, what you do, what you don't do, etc. Um But that's it. When Patrick started talking about making this, this new knife, he was talking about putting a, a gut hook in it. And he decided not to. I was so happy when he decided not to do that. I really, really was. My belief is if you need a gut hook to gut a deer, the problem is that you don't know how to gut a deer. I have never needed a gut hook to gut a deer. I can admit that... A hook for skinning and coming down the legs can be valuable. But when it comes to gutting, which in the field, I'm pretty much going to gut the deer. I'm going to take the organs that I want. I'm going to put them in my bags. I'm going to wrap a rope around the deer. I might wrap the deer in plastic. I don't know. It depends on how long the drag is and how, how good I feel right now. I'm going to drag the deer out. I'm going to throw his ass in the back of a pickup truck, and I'm taping up, taking him home. You know, and I have, like, I have a Wyoming skinner that has replaceable blades for just coming down those legs. You know, and that's that's probably the only place I use that type of a blade at all. And and uh, it's uh, you can look them up if you want to. I'm not gonna have any uh, guys. I'm short on time this week. I'm not gonna have any of this stuff on Amazon. And I'm not big on like get the Primos 132.5A Crunt Call. Find the one that works for you. Go to a place where you can try them out, listen to them, talk to people that use them, and find what works for you. And 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 don't spend too much money on any of this stuff. None of this stuff needs to be really expensive. Let me go back through, though, and tell you my opinion of each item as to whether it's needed, uh, really important, or nice to have. A small pack, needed. 35-millimeter canisters with deer lure, really nice to have. Really nice to have, okay? Um, in fact, I would put that to the important to have, but you could survive without it. Six feet of soft nylon rope, you need that. It's too cheap and easy not to have it. 25-foot of a rope with a dog clip for pulling up. You need two of those. Uh, four one-gallon heavy Ziploc bags with uh, zip ties holding them together, removable ones. I'd say two are needed, four are nice to have. Okay, A grunt or bleat call, nice to have. You don't need it. It's not even that important, but it, it's nice to have. The head net, you need it. You need it, you need it, you need it, you need it. Get two. Get two different ones, and if one's pissing you off that day, switch to the other one. Okay, uh, a rattle bag, nice to have. Toilet paper, you need it. 
and then you need it again, okay? I'll leave it at that. A good light, you need it. A blue lens cover on it, or blue option, nice to have. A headlight, important. You don't have to have it, but you need a light. If I had to choose between a headlight or a flashlight, I'm probably going to take the headlight. I, you know what? You need them both. The hell with it. Extra batteries, you need it. Pencils, important. You're not going to die without them, but you might get a ticket because you couldn't fill out your tag, and the fact that you stuck it on the deer isn't good enough for the game warden because he's being a, a tight ass. Uh, so that I'd you know say kind of need it since they're like penny a piece or something like that. Heavy duty contractor garbage bag, nice to have. Don't need it. Nitro gloves, important. So cheap, why not? Um, but I can say there were for years I hunted without them. Uh, so I can't say that they're they're needed. Um, I can tell you that since I started using them, cleaning a deer up, get it out, and then it's not cleaning the deer that's nicer. It's when I'm done cleaning the deer, and I'm not trying to wipe my hands off with leaves and toilet paper, and I can touch my gear without getting sticky blood all over it. It's really, really, I put it in the important category because they're cheap and they're so effective. Trail tax, needed. Needed, needed, needed. The bow hunter without trail tax sooner or later will not be able to find his place or he will get kind of disoriented or what have you. And they're like a couple bucks for a box of 50. Get two or three boxes of them. Uh, I do have another piece of advice, though, when I say that, now that I think about it. Um, I don't care if it's uh, extra cotton balls that you can use for other things or whatever. Put some filler in the packaging with them so they don't go rattle, 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 rattle while you walk around. Um, if you forgot that, get a big handful of leaves and stick them in there. But don't let those things rattle around. Most of the ones that they sell come with a piece of foam in the box, like a jewel box, and the tacks are into the foam or they're in cardboard. All right. But a lot of times when you're pulling them out because you're not going back to an area, it's nice to have some cotton or something in there to keep them quiet. All right. Uh, compact binoculars, important. Don't have to have them, but I would say they're important. Scent eliminator, nice to have. I have limited faith in it to begin with. Pruning saw, needed. Duct tape, needed. A good knife for gutting and field dressing, needed. Okay? So there we go. That's, that's kind of the primer on this. So we talked about the kit. Uh, today, uh, next episode, we'll talk about tree stands, uh, bows, broadheads, and some basic stuff on setting up uh, with all this gear once you're out in the field. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't.
children just can't pay Nobody up there cares They're living for Yeah.